Let's turn to some ancient words. 2,421 years old. Ezra chapter 1. And again, as a reminder, when we're referring to the books of where to find a chapter, it is Ezra or Nehemiah, but we take Ezra and Nehemiah as one book. We're going to begin our trek through Ezra and Nehemiah this evening. If you didn't hear our introduction to Ezra and Nehemiah last week, or last time rather, that would be pretty helpful for you to get the context and the flavor for the next 23 messages or so. We're going to go back in time here and we're going to join the exiles of Israel in Babylon. Babylon has now very recently been conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire. They've been taken over. And the older among the exiles, the older among the Jews, they continue to have hope that God will keep His word of restoration, His word of rescue, but their hope is tempered by the sadness of the moment. Listen to the hearts of the Jews so long removed from their home. The, the first part of Psalm 137 records their reminiscing. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion, that's Jerusalem. On the willows, there we hung up our lyres, For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. And as they're looking back in sadness, looking back in in grief, what is it though that would give them hope? What is it that gives them a light at the end of the tunnel? Asaph, the writer of Psalm 77, he bolstered his own faith by looking to the past so that he could have hope for the future. In the first part of Psalm 77, Asaph complains to God that he's in agony that his soul is unable to be comforted. In verse 2, he even asks rhetorically if God's loving promises have completely dried up. But then he remembers the mighty deeds of God in the past, and he begins to think on those and to to list them. And now his attitude and his confidence in God is, is lifted. And so by seeing God's sovereign work in the past, there is assurance of his sovereign work in the future that's strengthened and that is bolstered. The entire point of our series in Ezra and Nehemiah is that God is faithful. Great is thy faithfulness. And every message in this series is going to highlight one way that God is faithful. Tonight we'd like to highlight that God keeps His Word. God keeps His Word. And we're going to look at this from two vantage points, or we might call it two different camera angles of God keeping His Word. And this is vitally connected to the sovereignty of God. The first vantage point we'll call the visible, that which is seen, that which we can can grasp. The second and the most important vantage point, though, the invisible, that which is unseen. Two different camera angles, the visible, that which is seen, and the second angle, the second vantage point, the invisible, that which is unseen. We're going to start in Ezra chapter 1, verse 2. Because in the eyes of the world in 538 B.C., this was the beginning point. If news outlets were covering this event, if Fox News and the quickly plummeting CNN were covering this event, verse 2 is the part that the world can see. This is the visible vantage point. Ezra chapter 1, verse 2. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Israel. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem." Now, the star of this proclamation sort of appears to be God, but 
the writer accurately shows that for Cyrus, the star is really Cyrus. He's a legend in his own mind. Cyrus puts himself first in this proclamation. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia. He's honoring God on one hand, but he's taking it back on the other. He's highlighting himself as a great king. In fact, when Cyrus says in our English translation, he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, the Hebrew is a redundant personal pronoun. He himself has charged me. As if he has special favor with God, that God has come to the one man who can really help out God. And so he has special favor with God, at least in his own eyes. What is this here? This is religion being used as a political tool for Cyrus. His motives are not worshipful. They're not humble, but they are political and they are planned. Now, there's been some debate as to whether Cyrus was a true believer in God, whether he served God exclusively. That's almost certainly not the case. Now, there's evidence for it, and I'll give you that here first. Uh, Yes, he identifies God by name, the Lord, that is Yahweh. If your English Bible says the Lord in all capitals, that is the covenant name of God, Yahweh. Yes, he calls Yahweh the God of heaven. Yes, he credits Yahweh with giving him all the kingdoms of the earth. Uh, The Medo-Persian Empire, for all intents and purposes, controlled what they knew of the world. And yes, he believes Yahweh appointed him as king in order to release Israel from captivity to begin the work of rebuilding the temple. So that sort of sounds like he is a true believer in God. But does that really hold water? No. He believed in Yahweh, but not exclusively. We have two major pieces of evidence that he was not a true believer, that he was not an exclusive worshiper of God and God alone. One piece of evidence is biblical and another one is archaeological. The biblical evidence, which is enough for us, the archaeological just puts one more nail in the coffin here, but the biblical evidence we find in Isaiah 45, verses 1 and 4. 150 years before these events, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him, The gates may not be closed, Isaiah 45, 4. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. There is no salvific relationship here. There's no relationship related to salvation. That's the biblical evidence. The archaeological evidence is strong as well. In in 1879, at the ruins of the city of Babylon... Somebody dug up a clay barrel. It was an inscribed barrel and it was used as a record of events. Why would they use a barrel or kind of an obelisk kind of a thing? It's because a lot of people could surround it and read it all at one time. It was meant to be a memorial. And it was found near the temple of Marduk in the city of Babylon. This barrel was nicknamed the Cyrus Cylinder because what it contained was an inscription in first person, Cyrus himself speaking this word, this record. And Cyrus states that Marduk, the primary god of Babylon, had given Babylon for him to rule for Marduk. And in fact, the account concludes in the first person by Cyrus himself, quote, May all the gods whom I have resettled in their sacred cities ask daily Bel and Nebo for long life for me. Did you catch that? Cyrus thinks he's so powerful that he has taken the gods and put them in various cities. Cyrus was a polytheist. And what he was trying to do was serve all the gods represented by the peoples of the empire. He, he was kind of hedging his bet here by trying to worship everybody's god. This was an attempt to make everyone happy, to make everyone's god happy, so as to continue having a blessed rule. His strategy was brilliant in a way. His strategy was not to crush all the people that he ruled, but to affirm them and to affirm their gods, to not give them anything to rebel against. As a matter of fact, in his genius, when Cyrus invaded Babylon, there wasn't a lot of bloodshed. It was, it was frankly, I mean, the army was killed, but the people weren't. Cyrus came in basically saying, I have liberated you and you are now free to do what you want. And the people of Babylon actually felt that the the Persian rule was better. And so it was a genius tactic in a way. So what was he doing here? I mean, because this sounds like you could read this in church. 
the Lord, the God of heaven. What he was doing was using whatever designations all those peoples used of their gods. He used the names that he was taught to use. And so when Cyrus says, Yahweh, the God of heaven, he's simply parroting what the Jews said about God. Verse 3, you know that also, this is very denigrating to God. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. That Yahweh, the God of creation, is located in one city. And in fact, there's a flavor here that the God of Jerusalem, Yahweh, ought to be grateful to Cyrus for rebuilding his temple. And so, ultimately, he sees Yahweh as just another local God in the pantheon of gods in the ancient Near East. But he makes this decision, and there's two results of this decision. The first result is a proclamation. The proclamation is sent throughout the entire kingdom. This would have been read aloud by heralds to Israelites scattered all throughout the Persian Empire. And not only was the proclamation read aloud, it was also a written decree. It became law, and this allowed Israel to repopulate their land and to rebuild the temple. Uh, Later in Ezra chapter 6, this decree was searched for and found many years later when it was needing to be consulted. And so the first thing that happened as a result was this proclamation going out to all of his kingdom. And the second thing that happened, the second result was an invitation to all the Jews who wanted to, to return. This is phenomenal. Now, we keep this in the context of the ancient Near East and the Medo-Persian Empire. This was not technically freeing the Jews. It was allowing them to move from one location in the Medo-Persian Empire to another location in the Medo-Persian Empire. Still under the rule of Cyrus, though. Verses 3 and 4 gives that invitation. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Notice he doesn't say our God. He says your God. May his God be with him. The proclamation is to rebuild the temple of God. And you notice what is the priority here? What is God's priority? It is worship. It is the place of meeting with God. This is God's agenda, to restore His people that they might worship Him. And just to make sure this gets paid for, Cyrus imposed a tax to fund this expedition back to Jerusalem. Now, It looks sort of like a suggestion in verse 4. Let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold and so forth. But when the emperor of the Medo-Persian Empire says, let each survivor be assisted, this isn't a suggestion. Emperors don't make suggestions. They issue decrees. You notice the designation that Cyrus gives to the Jews. He calls them the survivors in verse 4. Those who escaped death when Jerusalem fell in 586 B.C. and were deported to Babylon. And it says, let them be, in verse 4, be assisted by the men of his place. Some take the men of his place as only the Jews that are not returning. There's merits to that argument. Others take it as not only the Jews living there but not returning, but also attacks on the Gentiles who were there, attacks on other peoples who lived there. I would hold to the second view that it's both Jews and Gentiles. Particularly, frankly, it might even be more so the Gentiles. And the reason for this is very simple. This would fit much better the parallel account of Israel leaving Egypt in 1446 B.C. when they were released by God from slavery. What did God lay on the hearts of all the Egyptians to do? To give them all their stuff. Israel left just with cartloads of gold and silver, and all kinds of jewels, and wealth. And so I would take this that through the decree of Cyrus, the survivors who would go back home were given this great wealth upon which to live and to uh, begin a new life. So those who are returning, the end of chapter 2 tells us exactly how many. 42,360 Jews, not including 7,337 male and female servants, and 200 singers to facilitate music worship. They were to be supplied with silver, with gold, with with goods or supplies, and with cattle, with beasts. This would assist the returnees in making a, a new life in the land of Judah. And those staying behind were to also give enough animals now, the free will offerings at the end of verse 4, give enough animals to restart the sacrificial system in Israel to jumpstart the worship of Yahweh to resume according to the law of Moses. 
So if the news outlets were reporting on this event, the people would give, give laud and honor to Cyrus the Great. That was his nickname in history. They would praise Cyrus the Great. Isn't it wonderful that he has benevolently and kindly returned 50,000 Jews or so to Jerusalem and to the province that the Medo-Persians called the province beyond the river. How compassionate, how generous, how caring. And because of Cyrus's act of kindness and generosity, the excitement of 50,000 Jews getting ready to go home, it must have been electric. And the rest of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2 chronicle the preparations to leave Babylon, now controlled by the Persian Empire. And finally, after 70 long years, to finally go home. The, the, the portion of the psalm that we read, of those weeping by the river in Babylon, that some of them would get to go home. But the, what the news cannot report, what only the Word of God can report, is the second and most important vantage point, and that is the invisible that which is unseen. You see, unbeknownst to Cyrus, Yahweh is the one moving his spirit to make this proclamation. Hidden in Cyrus's false pretensions of being loyal to everyone's gods is the one true living God actually causing his actions for the good of his one chosen nation, and that is Israel. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. This is the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. This is 538 B.C. This, is, this date is solidly locked in here. This isn't the first year that he's been a king. He's been a king for 20 years uh, with the Medes and the Persians over various cities. But this is the first year that he's king over the recently conquered city of Babylon, the, the, the kingdom of Babylonia. This is one year after Cyrus had captured the city of Babylon, after he had taken control of the, the whole empire, and it happened in very interesting fashion. The conquest of Babylon happened in October of 539 B.C. The Persians were united with the Medes under Cyrus, they blocked and diverted the waters of the Euphrates River and they marched into the city of Babylon essentially unchallenged and they took over the kingdom. In fact, Daniel chapter 5 records the actual night that this happened. When King Belshazzar of Babylon made a feast for a thousand of his lords and even horrifyingly used the vessels of gold and silver taken from the temple in Jerusalem so many years earlier, to drink wine at this party as they praise their false gods. And you recall Daniel 5, it's stunning that suddenly the, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster wall right in front of King Belshazzar. He saw it. And, and the king was terrified. It said his, his, his knees were knocking and his face was drained of color. And they didn't know what to do, so they brought in the old Jewish prophet Daniel. And he was there to interpret the words on the wall. And Daniel told the king the interpretation given by God. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. And the end of Daniel 5 verses 30 and 31 says, quote, That very night Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. Darius was the throne name of Cyrus. Darius would be like Pharaoh of Egypt. It was a title in essence. But this is the same guy. So how involved was God in this entire event? Well, I would say pretty involved. God manifested himself as a human hand writing on the wall. If I had time, I'd like to go into the metaphor of the hand of God, not only in Ezra and Nehemiah, but all throughout the Bible. In this case, what is the hand of God? It is His hand literally writing His words, writing His decree, writing His proclamation, writing what He says is about to happen. And talk about quickly fulfilled prophecy. It happens at, you know, late evening or early evening and the prophecy is fulfilled just a few hours later. This appearance of a human hand the hand of god is writing on the wall and literally outside the city the medes and the persians are, are quietly diverting the waters of the euphrates river and they're sneaking into the city at the same time 
So God was involved the year prior to the proclamation here in Ezra 1. Why did Cyrus actually make this proclamation to free the Jews? What was the actual reason? Verse 1, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. God was the sole cause. Cyrus had no say in the matter. And yet he thought it was his idea. But the focus of the action here, while Cyrus thought it was him, the real focus is this phrase in verse 1, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. That God is a promise-keeping God who always keeps His word. What word is Ezra 1, 1 speaking of by Jeremiah? It's very likely the same texts that Daniel read. Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, in the first, king, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descendant of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonian Empire, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord, the Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Daniel is reading it, Cyrus is fulfilling it. And it was this great hope which inspired Daniel's tremendous prayer of confession in Daniel 9, verses uh, 4 through 19 or so. This is consistent with prayers of confession that we'll see by both Ezra and Nehemiah. That when the revelation of God is given, that there's great confession and great humility. Now there's a couple of ways to think about Ezra 1. The word of the Lord being fulfilled. And so I want to walk through this with you. The first way is that Ezra 1 could be referring to Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 25, 11. Jeremiah says, This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Jeremiah 29.10, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. These prophecies were given to God, given to Jeremiah by God, rather, in 605 B.C. And so the exile would end around 537-536. We're here in the year 538. The first return happened in 537 and the foundation of the temple was laid in 536 or 535. Somewhere right in there. What does that put us at? 70 years. Exactly. And so that's kind of a, a, the first way to look at this is being from Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah 29. But the second way to look at Ezra 1.1 is that Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah 29, that's the scenery. That's the backdrop But the ultimate focus is on Jeremiah 51. And I'd like to take a moment to show this to you if you would turn forward in your Bible quite a ways to Jeremiah chapter 51. I have cheated and put a bookmark in my Bible. Jeremiah 51. And I'd like to show you some specific wording that tells us that Ezra 1.1 is primarily referring to Jeremiah 51 as the main character, so to speak, with the information of the 70 years in Jeremiah 25 and 29 as the backdrop, as the scenery. Jeremiah 51, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will stir up the spirit of a destroyer against Babylon, against the inhabitants of Lebkamai. The inhabitants of Lebkamai are the Chaldeans. This is a, a people that was essentially another designation for Babylon. I'll explain that more shortly. But I want you to notice this phrase. I will stir up the spirit of a destroyer. What does Ezra 1.1 say? The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. It's the same phrase. It's the same phrase. Verses 2 through 4 here in Jeremiah 51 Describe the total takeover of Babylon by the destroyer, that is Cyrus. And what is the reason? Verse 5. For Israel and Judah have not been forsaken by their God, the Lord of hosts, but the land of the Chaldeans is full of guilt against the Holy One of Israel. What's the reason? Ezra 1.1. The Lord is fulfilling His word through Jeremiah, which is to Israel, that He would not forsake her. And how is he rescuing her? By bringing another king in to rescue. Notice the total sovereignty and the control of God. Verse 7. Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand 
making all the earth drunken. The nations drank of her wine, therefore the nations went mad. Suddenly Babylon has fallen and been broken. Wail for her. Okay, get this picture. Jeremiah pictures Babylon as a, as a golden cup held in the Lord's hand to be used by him. And, and he's pouring the cup out on the nations. They're, they're the instrument of his judgment. But the moment he's done with the cup, he drops it. And it's shattered and it's done. Babylon has fallen and been broken. Why is this? This is sovereignty. God used Babylon to judge Israel. Then God turned his sights on Babylon and said, how dare you hurt my people Israel? And he wipes them out by means of the Medo-Persian Empire. Verse 6. Flee from the midst of Babylon. Let everyone save his life. Be not cut off in her punishment. For this is the time of the Lord's vengeance. The entire book of Habakkuk is this theme. Habakkuk is complaining to God, look at all the injustice in Judah and in Jerusalem, how all the people are, are disobeying you and, and the leaders are corrupt. And God says, you're right. I'm going to destroy Jerusalem. I'm going to come against this people with Babylon, with the Chaldeans. And, and Habakkuk's going, hang on, that's not what I was saying here. Time out. But then God gives a promise. Don't worry, I'm going after Babylon as soon as they go after Israel. And so Habakkuk ends the book saying, I will wait for the day of destruction to come upon those that have destroyed Jerusalem. That's the theme there in Habakkuk. But I want you to notice here in Jeremiah 51, most importantly, verse 11. Verse 11, sharpen the arrows, take up the shields. The Lord has stirred up the spirit of the kings of the Medes because his purpose concerning Babylon is to destroy it. For that is the vengeance of the Lord, the vengeance for his temple. You have the same phrasing as Ezra 1.1. Again, stirred up the spirit. Vengeance on Babylon was partly due to the destruction of the temple. And Cyrus was going to right that by sending Jews back from exile to rebuild the temple. Now we can go back to Ezra chapter 1. What is the author doing here? He's hearkening back to the same language of stirring up the spirit. That just as God stirred up the spirit of the Medes to conquer Babylon, so he's now stirring up the spirit of Cyrus to proclaim the rebuilding of the temple. I don't know if you're catching this or not, but God is quite literally moving empires to restore his people, to restore proper worship in Jerusalem, and to give a remnant their home back in the little tiny city of Jerusalem. What does this show? Well, it shows us that God's anger against Israel and God's punishment of Israel had a preset time limit. It, it had a time constraint on it. And an exiled Israelite would have clung to this hope just like Daniel did. Daniel read from Jeremiah 25 and 29 and from Jeremiah 51 most likely and, and was excited and thrilled because he saw that the 70 years was almost up. I read earlier a part of Psalm 137, a clear hope for return, a clear hope for restoration. And so the author of Ezra Nehemiah highlights right up front, right at the beginning, the theological significance of Cyrus's first year as the king of Persia. He emphasizes the real issue, and that is that Cyrus is just this little pawn in the truly important parts of God's redemptive plan for Israel. And so what's the emphasis here? The emphasis is that God keeps his word. He said exile will, would happen, and it did. He said it would end in 70 years, and it is. It's exactly what happened. This is a joy-filled announcement of fulfilled prophecy. Don't you sometimes wish that there was a verse in the Bible that said, uh, in this such and such year, the Lord will rapture his church? Wouldn't that give you excitement to get to that passage? And that's, it, that's two years from now. I'm going to quit making a house payment. I'm going to... That's why God doesn't give us that, because we would quit, right? But you can imagine that excitement that the end of exile is almost here. Now, what does this mean, though, that God stirred the spirit of Cyrus? Is this some sort of vague inspiration? Is this God dropping some hints and kind of hoping that Cyrus figures it out? No, this is, in fact, the exact phenomenon described in Proverbs 21, verse 1. Proverbs 21, 1, you don't have to turn there. Just listen to this. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. 
It's this picture of a, of a river of water. And ironically, the, the way that the Medo-Persians took over Babylon was by diverting the waters of the Euphrates. This is exactly the same thing, that the heart of the king is like a stream of water and God turns it to do whatever he will have it to do, to have it dig whatever channels, to have it water whatever plants, to do whatever he wants it to accomplish. It proves that God is sovereign over the lives and decisions of the greatest leaders in the world. Why is our president today doing the things he's doing? Because that's part of God's decree that we don't understand. Why has Russia invaded Ukraine? Because that's part of God's decree that we don't understand. God is always sovereignly behind all these events. And this shows us that God can control a human king to be the instrument of God's judgment. For example, Babylon judging Israel or the instrument of God's help and blessing, Cyrus coming to Israel's aid. God controls the heart. And what does this mean? That God controlled all of His powers of reasoning, all of His feelings, all of His choice. And if you read verses 2 through 4, you get the distinct impression here that Cyrus sees himself as agreeing with God's direction, having no idea that God's the one that gave him that direction in the first place. God is the one who told him what what to think. This is one of the core ideas to Ezra Nehemiah, that God's sovereign actions cause human events, that cause human actions. God sovereignly causes this. Ezra 6, verse 22, the Lord turned the heart of the king to Israel. Ezra 7, 27 through 28, the Lord put things into the heart of the king for the sake of rebuilding the temple. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 8, the king granted Nehemiah's request because of God's hand in the situation. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 18, the hand of God created the favor of the king. What we're getting here is the invisible vantage point, the heavenly viewpoint, the omniscient view given by the author that this is what's really happening behind the scenes. Cyrus, the greatest king on earth, doesn't do or say anything until we understand that God in heaven is the one directing his actions. He's the one behind everything. How mighty is the sovereign hand of God to keep His word? Remember I pointed out earlier that literally while Cyrus was quietly preparing to invade the city of Babylon, God was declaring to the king of Babylon that his kingdom was taken from him. Let me go back even further just to show the total complete sovereignty of God which always guarantees that He will always keep His word. And we're going we're gonna to walk through some sludge here for a little bit. Sludge called history. Now I'm going to give you the point of it as we go along. 120 years before Cyrus invaded Babylon, the mighty Assyrian Empire was at the height of its power up to about the 650s B.C., But deterioration began began because the the kingdom was huge. The empire was giant and rebellions began to crop up around the empire. Little fires here and there. Egypt began kidnapping and exiling Assyrians. More seriously, Assyria had major problems in the southeastern part of the empire where Assyria controlled Babylon. And a civil war was now being fought by a coalition of the Elamites and the Chaldeans to turn Babylon into an independent nation. They, they kept trying, they kept failing, these initial attempts failed, but the instability in the region continued while the Assyrian Empire began to degrade over time. A tribe called the Chaldeans, growing in strength, very fierce, very fearsome, very feared. They were an Aramaic tribe from lower Mesopotamia. They eventually took independent control of Babylon under a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar in 626 B.C., He would establish the Neo-Babylonian Empire in order to give it to his son, a man you may be more familiar with, Nebuchadnezzar. Meanwhile, back in Judah, back in the little southern kingdom of Judah, during the early years of Assyria's decline, King Josiah of Judah, really one of the best kings they ever had, he took advantage of the declining Assyrian influence to renew and revive the proper religious practice in Judah. He went to great lengths to purify the worship in Jerusalem and return people to obedience to Yahweh. While the Assyrians were busy putting out fires to the north of Judah, Israel, or Judah rather, could focus more on their sanctification as a nation, and they did so under Josiah. Now, under the control of the Chaldeans, the Babylonian army took a whole different feel. They were speedy, they were maneuverable, they were powerful. Throughout the region, their reputation spread. They were so fearsome 
that when God told Habakkuk that the Chaldeans were coming, the end of Habakkuk tells us that his, his knees went weak, that his stomach hurt, that his mouth went dry and his lip quivered because he knew what they could do. Late in the reign of Josiah of Judah, the Chaldeans had defeated the Assyrian city of Nineveh in 612. This was prophesied, by the way, in the book of Nahum. In warfare, the Chaldeans were, were ruthless. They used battering rams, siege ramps. They tunneled under city walls. They, they killed and they murdered and they maimed. Anything to gain speedy, decisive victory. Well, now there was a battle for control of the entire region from Egypt up to Syria and to Babylon. The, the Babylonians were gaining in strength and the Assyrians were starting to lose ground. For several years, Assyria held the Babylonians at bay at a major city called Carchemish. And it's here that Judah gets drawn into the conflict. Now, Egypt had been Assyria's enemy, given the choice, uh, though Egypt had to help Assyria in order to avoid eventual domination by the Chaldeans and, uh, in Babylon. So they had a terrible choice to make. And so in 609 BC, Pharaoh of Egypt heads north. Now, let me give you a little geography. Judah is here. Egypt is here. Babylon is here. So Egypt has to go straight through Judah. Egypt couldn't have cared less about Judah. It's this little tiny nation. They're they're just traveling through. It's It's just a pit stop on the way. But on the way through the western side of Palestine to try to rescue the Assyrians at Carchemish, Pharaoh Necho of Egypt had to travel through Judah. King Josiah decided, well, Assyria is not my friend and Egypt's not my friend, so he decided to try to intercept the mighty Egyptian army at Megiddo to prevent them from helping Assyria. 2 Kings 23-29 records the outcome. In his days, that is the days of King Josiah, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria to meet or to the river Euphrates. And King Josiah went to meet him. And when Pharaoh Necho saw him, he killed him at Megiddo. Unfortunately for Josiah, his decision to try to stop mighty Egypt cost him his life and cost Judah the best king they'd had in generations. Well, Necho continued north up to the, Babylonian, to the Palestinian coast to attempt to rescue Carchemish and defeat the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon crushed Pharaoh Necho in 605 during the fourth year of the reign of Jehoiakim of Judah. And at the battle of Carchemish, in one blow, the entire Assyrian Empire fell for good. The powerful Egyptians never regained any more influence in the region. They were done. They, they went home with their tail between their legs. And Carchemish was so devastated by Nebuchadnezzar that it was abandoned and never again seen until it was seen by archaeologists just a, a, few, a couple of hundred years ago. Now, why do all this history? Because God was sovereignly controlling all of these events because his precious people had violated covenant with him so much that punishment was now coming. Now in this time, at 605 BC, right at the time of the battle of Carchemish, God is promising the prophet Habakkuk that the Chaldeans are coming to be the instrument of punishment to Israel. Right after the the defeat of the Assyrians and the Egyptians at Carchemish, a revolt was being prepared by Jehoiakim, king of Judah. He didn't learn from Josiah, apparently. He was going to revolt against Babylon because Judah was continually caught in the crossfire of these wars between Egypt and Babylon and was suffering. But the real cause of their suffering was disobedience. Josiah was a blip on the radar of obedience, but mostly it was all disobedience. Generation after generation of disobedience to God. And so King Jehoiakim was preparing for years to revolt. Babylon had already taken into exile quite a few Jews in 605, right around the time of the Battle of Carchemish. The remains of a combination military garrison and palace were found at a place called Beth Hakarim near Jerusalem. And it shows that this was only for Jehoiakim saving up provisions for this revolt. After several years of preparation, Jehoiakim went for it. He was going to revolt. Well, Nebuchadnezzar made it quite short-lived. He crushed the rebellion quickly in 597 and came up against Jerusalem. Jehoiakim lost his life. And again, for the second time, many Israelites were now exiled to Babylon. This was the beginning of what would culminate in the devastating defeat of Judah in 586 when Jerusalem was actually destroyed. 
Three decades later, a young man is coming up in the ranks of the empires of the world named Cyrus. And he began making history by targeting the kingdom of the Medes and setting himself up as their king, basically now uniting the kingdoms of the Medes and the Persians, the the kingdom of Media and Persia, both of them we would call of Iranian descent. He kept expanding his kingdom even as the Babylonians began to weaken. In 539, Cyrus took Babylon and basically the entire region just went down like dominoes. Again, why this sludge through history? All of that history happened because God made two promises. First, to Israel, if you disobey me, I will exile you and take away the land in which you dishonor me. And second, but it won't be forever. It'll be for 70 years. God moves history to keep his word. Also, a ragtag bunch of humble Israelites could go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple of God and worship God at home. God keeps his word. Do you think that perhaps his promises to you will be fulfilled? He moves history to fulfill his word. Throughout the course of these messages, in one way or another, I'm going to apply these texts to our lives in three ways. First, I want to talk about our personal growth in Christ-likeness. Second, I'll talk about understanding the road to the cross of Christ from Ezra and Nehemiah. We always want to make a road to the cross. And third, as I showed you last week in detail, we want to understand the road to Christ's coming kingdom. As we saw last week, and we'll keep emphasizing this, that ultimately the return of the exiles in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah falls flat. And what does it leave us doing? It leaves us looking forward looking ahead to the true return of Israel and her Messiah. And so Ezra and Nehemiah just shows us that God can do this anytime he wants, but that's not the ultimate return of the kingdom. So let's apply this in three ways. First of all, how do you grow in Christ-likeness from this text? How do you grow to be more like Christ? One of the greatest indicators of spiritual maturity in the Christian is genuine trust in the sovereignty of God. That God's workings are sovereign. That He always keeps His word. Now this trust doesn't negate the need to cry out to God. It doesn't negate the need to cling to God in moments of doubt and fear. Even the Lord Jesus Himself expressed His emotion to His Father before His arrest. After telling His disciples that His soul was filled with sorrow, He prayed to His Father, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from Me. But this is the key phrase, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He trusted the sovereignty of God. He perfectly expressed himself to his father and yet was totally content to follow God's will. Where do you find true contentment? I think there's only one place to find it, and that's nestled safely in the sovereignty of God. There's no other way to be content. What does the sovereignty of God do for us? It reminds you that everything that he does for, and sometimes it feels like to you, is ultimately for your good. Romans 8.28 says this. He does not obligate himself to tell you how it is for your good. You'll find that out in eternity, but he does obligate himself that everything he does, all things work together for good to those that are called according to his purposes. Ezra 1, 1-4 gives you confidence that God's past faithfulness is a 100% guarantee of his future faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. The second application, what is the road to the cross of Christ from here? Here in Ezra 1, we see God's sovereign work to physically rescue a remnant of Israel through a non-believing ruler named Cyrus. This is where this becomes very important. There's a physical rescue of a remnant of Israel by means of a non-believing ruler, Cyrus. If we went forward to the Gospels, we see God's sovereign work to spiritually rescue a remnant of Israel through a non-believing ruler named Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate becomes the pawn in God's plan for Jesus to go to the cross so that his people might be rescued spiritually. And like Cyrus, Pilate thought he was the true sovereign. He thought this was all his idea. Pilate thought himself sovereign. In fact, he even told Jesus... Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? John 19.10 Jesus 
replied, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. The Apostle Peter proclaimed God's sovereign direction as the reason for the death of Christ, that Jesus was, in Acts 2.23, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And through the death of Christ, God began to bring in the fulfillment of the new covenant as He promised in the Old Testament. Uh, Jeremiah 30 through Jeremiah 33, specifically chapter 31, the, the new covenant passage that true spiritual Israel would be brought home to a saving relationship with her God. In the same way that they were brought home physically in Ezra and Nehemiah. What's the road to Christ's coming kingdom from here? We'll finish up our time on this. What's the road to Christ's coming kingdom? The prophet Daniel recognized from reading Jeremiah's prophecy given to Jeremiah in 605 B.C., that the exile of Israel would last 70 years. His immediate prayer of response, his, his prayer of confession in Daniel 9, 4-19, it ends with a plea to God to fulfill His Word. Interesting, he, he read the Word of God and yet he prays for the Word to be fulfilled. Given that Daniel read this prophecy in 538 B.C., it meant that freedom was just a couple of years away. Jeremiah gave this 70-year prediction again in Jeremiah 25 and in Jeremiah 29, but beginning in the very next chapter, in Jeremiah 30, the prophet not only predicts the end of exile, but the beginning of Israel as a nation once again, a nation with a land restored to the Lord. And this lengthy description of restoration, in Jeremiah 30, verse 1, all the way through Jeremiah 33, 26, here's the interesting part. We cross a bridge because there are numerous features to this promise of restoration which never happened in Ezra and Nehemiah. So Ezra and Nehemiah foreshadows and echoes the fulfillment of God's restoration promises that there's more to come. The last message in this series will not be from Ezra and Nehemiah. It'll be from Jeremiah 30 through 33. And I'm going to show you all the aspects of the kingdom that never happened here that are yet to be. I'll just give you a taste right now. Here's a few things that Jeremiah says are going to happen in Israel's restoration which never happened in Ezra and Nehemiah. Chapter 30, verse 9 of Jeremiah. A king is raised up. A glorious king. That never happens in Ezra and Nehemiah. The best they have are temporary governors. In fact, in Ezra and Nehemiah, there's very little emphasis on the leadership. Not kingly leadership at all. It's interesting to me that Nehemiah is very often preached as a book of leadership. It's quite the opposite. This is a book about the people of God being led by very, very humble men. Ezra is not kingly. Nehemiah is not kingly. There's no king. The only king is the king back in Persia who keeps calling the shots. But Jeremiah 30 verse 9 says that when the kingdom is restored, it'll be a kingdom with a king. Chapter 31 verse 5 says that they will inhabit the full land boundaries promised Israel in the Abrahamic covenant. Remember last week I told you that the little tiny nation that Israel re returns to in Ezra and Nehemiah is basically six times the size of the city of Bakersfield. Very, very small. But all of the land boundaries promised to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant will be brought forward. Something else that happens, chapter 31, verse 8, and chapter 32, verse 37, there will be the gathering of a great company from the entire world. What happened in Ezra and Nehemiah? 42,360. That, that's not even a town, much less a great kingdom. But a great company will be gathered from all over the world. The Jews returning home. In chapter 32, verse 44, one more feature that doesn't happen in Ezra and Nehemiah. Permanent restoration of land ownership for all time. As we go through Ezra and Nehemiah, there's going to be a frustrating factor to us. The frustrating factor is it seems like all of their neighbors keep trying to take everything away from them. But Jeremiah 32 says there will be a day when that never happens again. But the most important feature of the ultimate restoration of Israel as a land, as a nation, is the national culmination of the new covenant located in that section of Jeremiah 30 through 33, right in the middle, Jeremiah 31, the new covenant. 
This is clearly not consummated during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. In fact, that's why Ezra and Nehemiah ends in failure. Because the Spirit of God has not indwelt these people. They are not part of the church. They are not part of Christ yet. God's sovereignty in the 6th century B.C., the, the limited return of Israel, it gives confidence that God will gather all of Israel from every corner of the earth when what Jeremiah thirty twenty one says, their prince who shall be one of themselves returns. And who is that? That is the Lord Jesus Christ. God keeps His word. And this is very important for you, very important for me, that he keeps his word because the Lord Jesus Christ himself made a promise. He said, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. And we must be able to trust him that he keeps his word. Ezra 1 proves that you can take God's word to the bank. And in fact, you can take it to the grave. That's pretty important for us. Amen. Let's pray together. Our sovereign God, we... Thank you for this text. And like the Israelites of old who looked to your past faithfulness to give them confidence in your future steadfast love, we remember your goodness to us in our own lives. You opened our eyes to the gospel of Christ. You led us in the way everlasting before we even knew we had need of salvation. And in our lives... You have worked out your sovereign will with precision, with perfection, including all the blessings and all the pain. And so we cast our cares upon you, upon your sovereign goodness. And Father, based on your record of perfect faithfulness, we look forward to your faithful mercy on our last day when you will bring us home to our home in heaven. We thank you and praise you that you are a God who keeps his word. All through and because of Christ we pray. Amen.